Well, let me just begin by saying good morning again to all of you who are here in this room. It's a pleasure to be gathered for worship together, and I want to greet and welcome those of you who are joining us by video right now, if you're in our traditional sanctuary, and those of you who are joining us by live stream. I'm really glad that you're here. I'm glad that we're connected this way so that we all have this opportunity together to grow and learn together as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ. We're in the second week of a series this week. We started a new series last week called Ancient Roots, and it's a, an opportunity for us, a learning and worship journey for us to learn the ancient teaching, the confession, the summary of Christian faith that comes from ancient times called the Apostles' Creed. And this week we're learning from the second line of that creed that says, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. We're going to learn about that and explore that today. And then in the second half of today's message, we're going to explore what that confession of faith in Jesus the Lord could mean for us, what guidance it could provide for us Christians in the midst of one of a confusing election season. Oh, I thought I got your attention with that one, right? Yeah, okay, all right. If the blood pressure cuffs are on, just went up a little bit. Before we get to that, we got to start with some Christian basics. We're going to start with just some basic Christian terminology, and we're going to start with these words, this confession of faith. If I could put that slide up right now that is this confession of the second line of the Apostles' Creed, I want to invite you to say this with me, but acknowledge at the same time that I know that some of you who are here today are just visiting. You're just checking things out, and you may not consider yourself a Christian yet. Consider yourself as someone who follows Jesus. And if you're not comfortable saying this out loud because it's not true for you yet, you don't have to say this. You can read along if you'd like to. You're welcome. But you can also sit quietly and discern where is that place when you're ready to, to say yes to Jesus, who's your Lord. But I want to invite Christians to say together with me right now this. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Those are really interesting words. The Son of God. In fact, Jesus the Christ. Some people think Christ is Jesus' last name, but it's not. It's actually a title. Christ, Son of God, and Lord. And they all mean relatively similar things, actually. In the time we have today, we're a little bit constrained, and so we're just going to focus in on the word Lord. And I think that'll help us understand all these things together. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what these terms mean. Can I ask you a question for a second? How many of you, you can go ahead and raise your hand. Do this in the sanctuary too. Pastor Angie will want to know. How many of you have seen the movie The Princess Bride? Did you ever see the movie The Princess Bride? Oh, yeah, good. Loud and proud. Thanks, guys. All right. So there's a place, and there's a character in The Princess Bride. Uh, his name is Vizzini, and he keeps saying one word over and over again, and he misuses it. And that word is inconceivable, right? This and that is all inconceivable. And then one of the characters, Inigo Montoya, says to him, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means, right? So for those of you who have seen this movie, you're going to enjoy the next 20 seconds. For those of you who haven't, this is like cultural education for you, okay? Right? And I realize this movie's kind of old and I'm dating myself here, but we're just going to skip right over that. Can we play that little video right now for people? Why are you doing that? Making sure nobody's follow us. That would be inconceivable. You're sure nobody's follow us? As I told you, it would be absolutely, totally, and in all other ways, inconceivable. He's climbing the rope. And he's gaining on us. Inconceivable. He didn't fall! Inconceivable! You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Okay. Guilty pleasure there a little bit, right? Okay. Christians keep calling Jesus Lord. We keep using that word. I'm not so sure it means what we think it means. To understand what the word Lord means in a biblical context, in the, in the context of historical Christian confession, we need to understand this word against two different backgrounds, two different contexts. 
And the first one is the background of the Bible itself, and specifically the Old Testament, which was the Bible that Jesus read and the Bible that all the first Christians read and found the story of Jesus in. And in the Old Testament, God's people, God, ancient Israelites, that their name for God was the Lord. Now, they actually, they believed they knew the name of God, but they never were going to say it out loud. Out of reverence for God and out of caution not to break the commandment that says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, you're never going to break that commandment if you never take the name of God at all, right? So they chose never to pronounce the name of God. And whenever that name would appear in Scripture, they would cover over it by using the word Lord instead. So Lord became a name for God. Let me give you one example out of many that you could find in the Old Testament. A very central verse in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The Lord became the name of God. And when Christians then began to apply that title to Jesus, they were identifying Jesus with God. They were recognizing that in Jesus they were seeing God. This is God. We give him the same title. And why would they choose this title in particular? Because there are many. There are lots of different titles that you could use to name God in the Bible, as a matter of fact. But this one became central and was applied to Jesus. And the reason for that, I think, is its central meaning is being in charge. The Lord is in charge. The Lord is king. The Lord reigns. And when Jesus came, the Christians realized as he began to teach about the kingdom of God and began to enact the kingdom of God among them, that they were seeing the rule and reign of God in Jesus, which really is the same flavor of the word, the same definition of the word that we find when we learn from Jesus' wider world, from the world, the context of the world around him. At, at a sort of simpler level, people who were in charge of all different kinds of stuff could be called Lord in some way. Like, you can think of like medieval lords and ladies. They were the Lord of this area or that area or something like that. And then as you went up the power chain, up the food chain in the Roman Empire, the kings, the emperors of the Roman Empire used words like these to describe themselves. So Caesar Augustus, who's probably the most famous emperor of the whole Roman period, he was the king of the Roman Empire when Jesus was born. The titles that were used to describe him were son of God and savior. Right? So he did not have an ego problem, actually. He's good. <laughs> I'm the son of God and the savior of the world. And people thought that about him. And then as you went through the first century a little bit, through the lifetime of Jesus and some of his first followers, some of those early Roman empires, emperors, including the emperor Domitian, called themselves Lord and God. That, that became their title. If you've ever worked in an office, could you imagine putting your nameplate outside your office? John Smith, Lord and God, right? It's probably a pay raise that comes with that title. Domitian wanted people to call him by that title. And some historians say that Domitian specifically instructed that his wife call him by that title. Imagine those family dynamics. That's all I'm gonna say about that, right? Now imagine for a second, that you are a Christian in that context. Imagine that you are a person who has come to believe in and love and follow and confess the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have found that it is fantastic news that Jesus, not anybody else, is Lord. Right? That, that the guy who said the stuff, who taught the things that Jesus taught, lived the life that Jesus lived, died the death that Jesus died. That the person who said, lived, and died like that 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 person is in charge of the world, you're like, that is good news. I am very happy about that. I believe and I rejoice that Jesus is Lord. And then people come to you and go, I need you to say that Domitian is Lord. 
And you think to yourself, I, I, I don't believe that. I'm not living for that. That's not true. I'm not prioritizing that. I don't want that to be true. You know, I, I don't live and serve and confess to advance the agenda of the Roman Empire. I'm interested in the dignity and welfare of all people. I'm part of the Christian community that's welcomed the outcasts and the sinners and brought them in. You know, I, I don't, and I look around the Roman culture and I see the greed and the violence and the sexual immorality and I think it's destructive and corrosive to our humanity. It's not good for us. And I sure don't think that the so-called Lord of this empire is any good for us. I don't think he is a leader but a misleader of people. I don't think he is a savior but a destroyer of humanity. And there's no way on earth that I'm going to take the goodness and the truth and the beauty of the Lord Jesus and trade it out for that garbage. And then somebody comes to you and says, but you should say that Domitian is Lord. Right? This happened to people all the time. One guy's name is Polycarp. Polycarp, who in addition to having sort of a weird Roman ancient name, <laughs> Polycarp was probably about the end of the second generation of Christians. Tradition tells us that Polycarp was a disciple of St. John, although they didn't call him St. John then. We call him St. John now. He was a disciple of John who was himself a disciple of Jesus. And when Polycarp was 86 years old, around the year A.D. 155, Polycarp was arrested on charges of being a Christian. And he was brought before a governor, a proconsul of the Roman Empire. And this proconsul said to Polycarp, you, you should renounce your faith. You're an old man. Don't make this harder on yourself than it has to be. Don't disgrace your years. Renounce your faith so I don't have to feed you to the wild beasts. Polycarp, I need you to say, down with the atheists. Now, the reason that's interesting is because the Romans considered the Christians atheists because they denied the divinity of the Roman Lord and they didn't worship the Roman gods. So the Romans called the Christians atheists. Isn't that rich? And how that, that turns around? So Polycarp's able to play along with that, right? Because he knows that nobody around him are actually atheists, neither him nor his opponents. So he's like, fine, down with the atheists. Polycarp, I need you to renounce Jesus. And Polycarp answers in his 86th year of life, how could I blaspheme? How could I insult my Lord and my Savior? And so they killed him for his loyalty to the world's true Lord and King. Jesus is Lord. We keep using that word. I'm not sure it means what we think it means. We have been saying Lord. We use the word Lord like it's a private religious word. And we think of being religious as being a private thing that doesn't necessarily determine the rest of our public lives, what we say and what we value and how we form relationships and how we build communities. But in fact, if Jesus is Lord, if he is Lord at all, then Jesus is Lord of all. If he's Lord at all, he's Lord of all in our lives, including our public lives, our words and our values, our relationships, and our communities. But I think over the course of a couple thousand years, we've sort of allowed that title to slip, and we've become more comfortable with, uh, with diminished uses of that word. And in fact, I think at this point now, without ever saying so out loud, we have all agreed silently to give Jesus a demotion. We've decided to demote him from his office as Lord, and instead we have installed him as the undersecretary for afterlife affairs. <laughs> we have decided that Jesus' job is to get us into heaven when we die. That is within his dominion. But it is not his jurisdiction to be in charge of everything in our lives. 
But of course, that's not what Jesus said. And that's not what the first Christians confessed when they said Jesus is Lord. And it's not really what we mean or want to believe when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. He is Lord of all. And really, when we gather as Christians and when we pray together and when we teach every week, we are really, all the rest of our faith and our pattern of life and values is simply working out the implications for each area of our life, what that central conviction means. If Jesus is Lord, what does that mean for our communities? What does that mean for our marriages? What does that mean for our lifestyle? What does that mean for the way we handle money? What does that mean for ministry? What does that mean for church that Jesus is Lord? And today... In the second half of this message, what I'd like to do is kind of think out loud with you a little bit about some guidance that could be provided for us. What would the implications be for us in the midst of a very confusing election season if, in fact, Jesus is Lord? Now, let me do a couple things to try to lower the blood pressure in the room right now. <laughs> I'm not about to tell you who to vote for. I'm not going to endorse a candidate. I have personally spent time in my life in churches and Christian communities where it was assumed that every good Christian was a Republican. And I have spent time and been a part of Christian communities where it was assumed that every good Christian was a Democrat. Some of you may have only been one of those kinds, and so you think it's weird that there's another kind. I understand. But neither one of those environments was very healthy, really. And so I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. But I can't talk to you today about the lordship of Jesus, standing in continuity with the Christians who have gone before us who died for that confession and hide from this implication or this application. And furthermore, I think, I hope, that as your pastor, I, I can provide some, some guiding principles that I hope will be of service to you, that I hope will be helpful to you in your thinking, in your praying, and even in your conversing and discussing out loud in public with other people this election season. And in fact, in our community, our, our growth group study guide, in our growth group study guide, the last third of our study guide this week is designed to try to make those environments little practice environments where we can practice having loving, truthful, civil, concerned conversations together as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ engaging this season of our public life together. So let me begin by offering you here what I think are these guiding principles that I hope can help us, that I hope will serve you as Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus in this time. Here's, here's the first one. Under the Lordship of Jesus, the Bible reveals priorities not policies. It reveals priorities, but not policies. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Some historians are starting to argue that the entire notion of human rights, which most of us just take for granted as a thing, that the notion of human rights really entered Western civilization as a result of Christian teaching. That, that prior to the last 2,000 years, people knew what it was to have rights because you were a citizen of the Roman Empire, as one example or you had rights because you were a citizen of the Egyptian empire, or the Persian or Parthian empire, or whatever. When your people conquered somebody else, you had certain rights. But it had not really occurred to people, at least as a public movement, that there were certain rights that attached to people simply because they were members of the human race. That there was dignity that attached to people because they were created in the image of God, because they were precious human beings. But that's exactly how people began to realize God saw people in the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus. And as the number of Christians multiplied in the world and they began to exercise influence in society, the idea of human rights entered even the Roman Empire, not perfectly, and there's plenty to confess and apologize for throughout history, but this was a movement that began there. And as we understand that, it moves into the second thing that I said, human rights and care for the vulnerable. 
It is a priority of the Lord Jesus that we care for the vulnerable because they matter just as much as the strong, because they matter just as much as everybody else. And so I think that those of us who follow the Lord Jesus, it will be a priority for us to care for the poor. It will be a priority for us to care for those who do not have access to adequate health care, wherever they are or for whatever reason that is, and there are a whole bunch of them. I think that it will be a priority for us to care for children who are very often the most vulnerable members of any society. And I think it will be a priority for us to care for them even before they are born and equally well after they are born and also when they are fleeing across borders all around our globe. And they will equally well be committed to the welfare and the conditions of those children's mothers and God help us the roles of their fathers as well. I think these are priorities that followers of the Lord Jesus can honor. It means that those people who are a problem to many of us are a priority to the Lord. These are priorities, but the Bible does not give us policies. The Bible does not reveal to us. God has not sent a prophet, I don't think, to tell us which tax plan will be the most just across all up and down the income spectrum. I don't think that it is revealed to us which immigration policies will be the most fair. I don't think it's revealed to us which benefit entitlement programs will actually provide the most benefit to those who need it and do good for people without just throwing a bunch of money away and creating cycles of dependence. Instead, I think Christians who can care passionately about these priorities, and it's possible that I've articulated these priorities not quite correctly, and if that's the case, God help us, let's fix those. But if those priorities are right, then I think that Christians who can get behind those priorities ought to be able to talk together with other Christians who care passionately about the same priorities but disagree about the best policies to get there and figure it out together because we will care more about advancing Jesus' goals than we will care about being right or about our party winning. I think the Bible reveals to us priorities but not actually yet policies. Let me give you just one more example to try to clarify this. I think a priority under the lordship of Jesus, a priority will be inter-ethnic, inter-racial reconciliation. Listen, the church actually at one point had a monopoly on this. Like we're the ones who showed the world how to do it. And sadly, I think we may have forgotten. But once upon a time, the church of Jesus Christ was the place where Romans and Greeks and Jews and Gentiles and barbarian and Scythian and slave and free all came together and made one family, the children of God our Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, united together by the one confession that Jesus is Lord. And God made a new family of them here on this earth. And they created a community the likes of which world history had never seen and showed the world how to do it. And I think we who are heirs of the Lord Jesus and that legacy will still care about a society where that's true, where people's value and rights will not be determined by the color of their skin or the borders that they were born behind. Those are priorities for us. But the Bible does not give us the policies. Again, it doesn't tell us which immigration policies will be the most just and do the most good for the most people. It doesn't tell us what forms of education or legislation or education or training or whatever will promote racial equality in our society in employment practices, in education, in housing, and law enforcement. Christians need to care about these things, I think. I think these are priorities of the Lord Jesus. But exactly how to do it is something that wise Christians need to talk together and together with other people of goodwill and figure this out together if, in fact, these are priorities of the Lord Jesus. If they are, I think the Bible has given these to us as priorities. 
but not yet his policies. Let me give you a, a second guiding principle that kind of grows out of this. And the second one is this. We are loyal to the lamb. We are loyal to the lamb. Now, the lamb, for those of you who may not know, is a biblical symbol for Jesus. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I, I mention the lamb in particular because I think sometimes, even as Christians, we are tempted to construct our identities, to find our community identity too much in loyalty to the elephant or the donkey. Right? Can I put that picture up there for a second? Here is the lamb and we're voting for the lamb, right? Now, honestly, you probably shouldn't color them all in the colors of America because Christians live the world over, right? The lamb is the lamb, the savior of God for all people. Oh, we can probably take that down now. Now, in my experience and in history, I think we can see how Christians or groups of Christians have sometimes been manipulated as voting blocks for one party or the other, and I have seen it go to both Republican and Democratic directions. And when that happens, it is not usually the agenda of the party that is compromised to the agenda of Christ. Rather, it is the agenda of Christ that is asked to bow the knee to the agenda of the party. Now, I'm not suggesting that Christians should not work to influence society for the good or that people shouldn't be involved in our political system. I think we absolutely should. And Christians have been seeking to influence society for the better in practical ways for as long as there have been Christians. It was our people, it was members of the Christian family that used to go and rescue discarded babies off the trash heap when their families decided that for one reason or another, they couldn't keep them and they had to be disposed of. It was the Christians who stepped in and said, we'll help with that. It was our people who liberated slaves for thousands of years and into our own history. It was our people who encouraged and tried to persuade husbands to be faithful to their wives and not leave them behind in economic ruin when it was more convenient for them. It was our people who created and founded hospitals and healthcare systems so that we would continue to heal the sick as Jesus told us to do. I'm not in any way suggesting that Christians should stop seeking to influence society. In fact, it was by means of efforts like these that they won the admiration of people who do not even believe as we do. And I think the reason it worked that way and the reason it worked well in those ways is because there's something about the character of the Christian message that is less compatible with power. There's something about the Christian message that is better at inviting people to follow than it is at coercing them to conform. Now, just to clarify again, so I'm not misunderstood here, I'm not suggesting that the members of our congregation or the Christians in general should not participate in our political process or even engage in the activity of our parties. I think those of you who do, I'm grateful for you. You have time, energy, gifts, insight, and wisdom. It's really important to try to, try to hammer out, try to find those ways that will best advance the priorities of the Lord in the Lord's world. And all of us who as Christians are on location in this particular republic, I think have the opportunity to be informed citizens and try to do this well. I'm merely suggesting that our primary allegiance, our primary loyalty is to the Lamb, and, we're, and we are in service to His agenda before any individual party agenda. Finally, the third guiding principle that I hope will serve you in this season is that this election matters more and less. This election matters more than some people think. This, it matters. The person of the two major party candidates, and I'm gonna go out on a limb and guess that one of them will be elected over the other candidates right now. The person who is elected as the next president of the United States, their ideas, their vision, their policies, their leadership will impact the lives of millions, and I don't think I'm going too far at all to say billions of people around the world. 
and it matters. And the way that we engage in that process matters. And so if you're somebody who's like, ah, politics, whatever, I don't want to get involved, it's too messy, it's muddy, whatever, it, it probably matters more than you think. It also might matter less than you think. And I think that some of us who are Christians should probably stop sounding so apocalyptic about this election. If I may be so bold, we have survived worse rulers than either of these candidates for election right now. And the kingdom of God is still doing just fine and Jesus is still on the throne. And so I'd like to finish by telling you that I believe that we have nothing to fear and every reason to hope. We have nothing to fear. Fear is a popular emotion in political cycles. It's a popular emotion in election seasons, but we have nothing to fear. The Bible teaches us, specifically in the book of Philippians, that our citizenship is in heaven, that our citizenship is primarily in the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God before it's in any nation. And the kingdom of God is not on the ballot this November, and Jesus is not on the ballot either. In fact, he's already on the throne, and nobody is taking him off. If Jesus ever stood for an election in his history, he lost it by a landslide. One time he was up for a popularity contest standing in the halls of power and the crowds had turned against him and they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. We want the other guy instead, give us Barabbas. And so they had, they had arrested the Lord Jesus and they not only locked him up, they killed him and they laid him in the ground for dead. And three days later, God said, ah, I don't think so and raised him again from the dead. And then he ascended to heaven and he's seated on the throne at God's right hand as the world's true Lord and King, and he is still Lord, and the kingdom of heaven is doing just fine. Thank you very much. We don't have any reason to fear, and we have every reason to hope. Some of us in this room have individual hopes that are attached to certain candidates in this election. You may be hopeful that a certain candidate will impact the lives of a certain people or a group of people positively, and those can be very meaningful hopes, so I don't mean to denigrate that at all. But our ultimate hope is somewhere else entirely. Our ultimate hope is in someone else entirely. Our hope is in the power of God that defeats sin and death now and forever. Our hope is in the power of God to make all things new forever and for now. And I do not have any idea, or at least I don't know with any certainty, who's going to win this election on November 7th, and neither do any of us here. But I do know who wins in the end. I've already read it. I know. I know that God wins. I know that God triumphs over the power of sin and death. I know that good defeats evil. I know that love triumphs over hate. I know that hope has and will triumph over despair. I know that life has and will triumph over the grave. And I know these things because of what I believe. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And if you believe that along with me, then you know all these things too. Then you and we together can engage even this crazy season without fear, and full of hope. And by our conduct for the next 15 days and well beyond, we can give witness to the world about the power of the Lord Jesus, about his power to transform lives and to transform relationships and to reorder communities. And we will be able to do that now and we will be able to do it well into the future. And when we go out from this place, today in just a few minutes. We will continue to work for the Lord's agenda. We will need to seek his priorities. We can do that individually and we can do that together. And here in this place, we can pray for it. So that's what I'd like to invite you to do right now is pray with me for that. Father in heaven, we thank you. Thank you for your love and your power, for your rescue from a world that is full of sin and corruption and heartbreak and hurt. And God, we pray for your salvation and your rescue to come into our lives, not only in the eternal future, but God, even now, 
as Jesus taught us to pray that your will would be done here on earth, here in the United States, here in Minnesota, here in our town, as it is in heaven. And God, we pray that you would fill us up with your Holy Spirit, that you would draw us to Christ, that you would conform our lives and our communities to the image of Christ, that you would banish fear from our hearts and from our land, and that you would fill us with hope. And God, I pray that you would make us to be faithful and powerful witnesses to the Lord Jesus, that through broken people like us, that you would do what you do best, and that is to save lives and draw people into eternal life now and forever in relationship with you. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.